From the Fox News Podcast Network, I'm Dana Perino, and everything will be okay. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Everything Will Be Okay. This week, I'm very excited to be joined by the co-founder of the metabolic health company, Levels. Her name is Dr. Casey Means. She is a Stanford-trained physician, an advocate for, as she says, creating a happier and healthier world and planet. And I think you'll see that she talks a lot about the individual. So what you can do to make sure everything is okay for yourself, which then also helps the world and planet, as she says. Dr. Means' pioneering research in metabolic health has uncovered the best diet routines for managing and preventing chronic illnesses. And with Dr. Means' guidance, you can discover the best plan to optimize your personal health. And I think you'll be quite inspired by her career change that she made as well. It was a tough call, but she made it. Dr. Casey Means, and I'm going to call you Casey from here on out. Thank you for joining the Everything Will Be Okay podcast. Dana, I'm so thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me. On my way up here to the studio, I was trying to remember where I first learned about you. And I believe it was on the Mind Body Green podcast. Yes. Would you have done that? I did. Yes. So my Pilates instructor recommended the, that podcast to me a while ago. And I, I actually qu- I quite like it. I listen to it often. I found your story so remarkable and so interesting. And I had 100 questions. And I thought, why don't I just ask her in front of everybody? Oh, that's perfect. I love <laughs> that story. This is so exciting. Yeah, it was really interesting. And so if you wouldn't mind, for those who haven't had a chance to know of you, they are going to know so now, but could you just tell people a little bit about where you grew up, how you grew up, and what you thought you wanted to do when you were a little girl? Absolutely. So I grew up actually right in the heart of Washington, D.C. So I was uh, surrounded by the political world, which was very interesting, but I took a, uh, and I worked on Capitol Hill, actually. Oh, where? Senator, Senator Richard Luger. Um, oh my gosh, he's a legend. Intern. He's a legend. I was able to sit in on some of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearings, and it was an incredible experience. He's a trailblazer. And so got a taste of D.C., but ultimately got really hooked by science and actually got to work at the NIH as a high school student and really caught that bug. And um, so I knew from a pretty early age that I uh, wanted to go into healthcare, uh, and I knew that I wanted to help people understand their own bodies better. And I was just fascinated by the body as this entity that interacts with the environment in such an interesting way. I learned actually, I remember my, it was probably my freshman year at Stanford about this, this concept of nutrigenomics, where basically the food we eat, the chemical, the thousands of chemical compounds and the natural foods we eat actually can totally change our gene expression. And that was just so amazing and empowering to me because I'd grown up thinking that, you know, our genes are our destiny and our genes are our fate. And it was amazing to me to uh, think about how these, these things we're putting in our body, like foods can actually totally change our fate and actually change the expression of our, our blueprint. And so that was some of the early, uh, you know, scientific inspiration that kind of got me really excited on a career toward medicine where we could pull these different levers in our diet and lifestyle to really change the lived reality um, of our experience uh, on this planet. And so 
uh, those are some of the seeds that were planted early for me as I as I embarked on my uh, journey towards being uh, a physician. And then that journey, it's arduous. It's expensive. Uh, I like to talk. Well, we on this podcast we talk a little bit about finding as best you can a good work life balance for yourself. I know when you're in medical school, that does not happen. <laughs> there is no work-life balance. There's just work. And then ultimately, you decided not to continue with that. And I always think that's a very interesting moment when you have put so much energy and resources and dedication into something you think that you want to do, and then the courage it takes to switch gears and do something else. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So... I took a yeah I took a stark uh, right turn after several years of training. So I had done four years of Stanford undergrad. I did four years of Stanford Medical School, and then I did almost five years of training in head and neck surgery, otolaryngology, so colloquially known as ENT surgery. And I vividly recall being in my fifth year of surgical training and my ninth year of postgraduate training and kind of having an awakening where I was doing surgery day in and day out. You know, we were doing a lot of sinus surgery, um, ear surgery, throat surgery, you know, cancer surgery of the head and neck. And, you know, was just about to launch into my independent, you know, private practice. And I was really struck by this, I mean, it hit me like a ton of bricks where I kind of looked around and I was like, you know, it's interesting. A lot of our patients that we do surgery on, they keep coming back. Like they're coming back for revision surgeries. They're coming back year after year for the same problems. Like, why are they not actually like getting fundamentally better? And, and honestly, like, even if some of their ear, nose and throat symptoms do go away, like a lot of these patients are just profoundly sick. Otherwise they have a lot of the standard American diseases like heart disease and high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, obesity, et cetera. And, you know, I really felt almost like impotent, like I'm in my little subspecialty here, but patients are really like fundamentally not getting better. And then you step back and you look at the system as a whole. And I was kind of looking around me and I'm like, we're spending $4.1 trillion on healthcare costs every year, more than any other country in the world by a long shot. Nearly 20% of the GDP of the largest economy in the world. And despite that, and despite every doctor I know around me slaving away every day and these billion dollar hospitals being built all over the country, the stark reality is that patients in America on a whole are getting sicker every single year from chronic diseases. We are actually getting sicker. We are getting heavier. We are having more mental illness and we're actually becoming more infertile as a country every single year. And every single year, we're spending more money on healthcare. And so this is really the definition of a system that's failing and of an unsustainable system. And that I just could not get that out of my head, that we are the quote unquote most advanced healthcare system in the world. And yet our population every single year is getting objectively worse mm -hmm. from a health standpoint. So that just really had me stopping and scratching my head and saying, wait a minute, I'm a doctor. I'm a leader in this system. You know, I went, I spent eight years at Stanford. Like, 
if I'm not going to fix this issue, who is? We'll be right back with more of this interview after this. One of the biggest things that really interested me, actually going back to sort of what really inspired me as an early medical student um, and, and that, you know, really being struck by the power of food and, and nutrigenomics and, and our environmental uh, factors to really change our, our fate. Um, I looked at the, the diseases that are really killing Americans, which are these chronic diseases, the diabetes, the, the type 2 diabetes, the heart disease, the fatty liver disease, the chronic kidney disease, the cancer. And you look at all these diseases and actually all of them are related to food. We know that food and lifestyle drive chronic diseases and actually food and lifestyle drive uh, the diseases that make up 90% of our healthcare costs. You know, we're not dying from acute things these days in mass like infectious disease. We're dying from these chronic diseases that take years and years and years to develop and that we know are related to our, our daily choices and exposures. And that's a fairly new phenomenon that it's chronic diseases that are killing Americans. Nine of the 10 leading causes of death are in some way either accelerated or caused by poor diet. And so what was so interesting to me was, you know, here I am nine years into my medical training and I've basically learned nothing about diet. I've learned very little about diet and lifestyle at all, even though it's the biggest lever we can pull to basically keep people healthy. And so that really struck me, like, why are we as a healthcare system essentially gaslighting patients into thinking that really food is not a huge answer to a lot of the problems they're facing and turning so much to much more serious interventions like um, obviously surgery and you know long-term chronic medications. And so that seemed like a real question mark to me that I wanted to dig into more deeply. Um, and what I really was fascinated by was, you know, we're told a lot of the time to trust the science. This has been a big term of the past few years, especially with COVID. And, you know, when you really go and look at the science and dig into PubMed, where all the papers are, you see a lot of research about the impact of diet, lifestyle, food on chronic disease. But what you don't see is making it into the guidelines. And the guidelines are really, you know, like the Bible for, for doctors. We follow the guidelines. We adhere to what the recommendations of our medical society say. And when you start to peel back the onion of, you know, why is a lot of this science about what could really be empowering information for patients to really improve their fundamental health and use simpler, you know, tools uh, that are safer, like food and lifestyle to impact their health. Why aren't these in our guidelines? And I think when you really start peeling back that onion, it unfortunately gets to be very sinister what you find, which is that, you know, the guidelines for many different specialties of medicine are just dripping with conflicts of interest you know, and we are unfortunately, um, I think, really obfuscating in our healthcare system a lot of the really interesting research around what patients can actually do to be foundationally healthier, as opposed to the research that really pushes people towards long-term chronic management of diseases through basically drugs. And so all of this was kind of spinning in my head. And fundamentally, I realized that I was probably not going to be able to change the system from within because the healthcare system is a gigantic business. Again, 20% of our GDP, $4 trillion, and it's a system that's designed to grow. It's a business, and its business model is actually predicated on the healthcare system having higher volume, which means seeing more patients uh, more often and doing more things to them. 
Mm-hmm. And so based on that system and the business model that is just inherent in this industry, which is one of the largest employers in the United States, there's very little training, incentive, or time for doctors to truly counsel patients on things that are going to make them fundamentally healthy, aka no longer a customer. And so unless the system's incentives were to change, it didn't seem like I could have the impact I wanted to from within the system. So I left the system. I put down my scalpel. I said, you know, I'm not going to do any more surgery, which is, of course, highly profitable uh, until... I understand what's really making people sick and whether there's anything we could possibly doing to be keeping patients out of the operating room, which is, of course, heretical to the business model of medicine. We want people in the operating room. There's literally a phrase that you eat what you kill as a surgeon because Mm. the money you make is Mm -hmm. uh, how many surgeries you sell. And that was told to me from early on in my training. When you go into practice, you eat what you kill. And so that all seemed very unsavory to me. It didn't seem like it was helping patients. I got into medicine to help restore health in patients' bodies, not to be a long-term drug dealer. And so I decided to leave. And that sent me on a journey that ultimately had me focusing really on the root cause of chronic illness. And what I really discovered over the, over the past five to six years was that you know really food is the answer to our chronic disease epidemic. I think that patients um, really need to understand their own bodies better and be more empowered actors in their health journey. I think the system has systematically disempowered people to actually ask questions and understand their own bodies. We've been told to have blind faith in these quote unquote institutions of trust like healthcare, which are undeserving of our trust given the abject failure they've had with treating and managing chronic illnesses, which is basically the more we spend on them, the the larger they've gotten as a percentage of the population. And so I'm really on a mission to empower people to understand how to live their healthiest lives. And that ultimately sprung into me starting the company that I co-founded four years ago called Levels, uh, which is an incredible health tech company that um, basically gives people radical access to um, to data about their own bodies so they can make better dietary and lifestyle decisions. It's really remarkable. I want to talk a little bit more about, well, a lot more about levels in a moment, but can we go back to a couple of things? And everything will be okay. One of the things I say is that it is true. I truly believe that everything will be okay, but that's not a passive exercise, meaning you actually have to put in some work to make sure that everything will be okay. And as you mentioned, foundationally, that is about your health. Like if you don't take care of your health, which that's your responsibility, nobody else can do that for you. And my goal is always, I never want to see my doctor, (laughs) which sometimes can be a problem. I do my checks and whatever requirements there are, but I would love not to be able to see my doctor and I don't take any medicines yet, though I have great respect and, and a lot of gratitude for the medicines that we have that make people feel a lot better. But Talk a little bit about empowering yourself by making a decision as a human being, an American, that means that you don't have to accept the idea that if your grandparent had diabetes and therefore you're going to have diabetes or other sorts of hereditary diseases that you can actually get in front of and prevent to make sure that you have a better quality of life. Yeah. So I think that, you know, 
step one for all people listening and really what I hope for all Americans is starting with just some curiosity. Again, we have been told to not ask questions and to really have blind faith in this system. And you know, for for good reason, the American healthcare system has produced miracles and life expectancy is much longer than it was 100, you know, 150 years ago. Um and you know, our technology is amazing, but a lot of that really applies to these acute, acute illnesses, the things that can kill us really quickly. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a believer in the healthcare system for those types of emergencies, the car accident, you know, the gunshot wound, um, these things where we need acute care, like a severe life-threatening infection. But the thing is, is that those are not the things that are killing Americans in mass today. Again, 90% of nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States are lifestyle based diseases that have basically cropped up in the last hundred years. And unfortunately, we are um, we are being essentially approaching those the same way we approach uh, acute illnesses, which is, you know, go to the doctor, hand over your autonomy and let them handle it and really kind of a paternalistic really disempowering perspective. Um, and unfortunately, I think that has really affected Americans psychologically as a whole, because what, what has happened is that we've really almost lost this curiosity and awe about our bodies. We really think that the salvation for our health, both physical and mental, is external to us. It's not intrinsic, but it's extrinsic. And I think that's actually really damaging to the human spirit. Um, and to the sense of individual empowerment that really our country is based on. Um, we, we give it away um, in the healthcare system. And because that's so intimate and personal to our lives, I think that actually really bleeds into a disempowering foundation mm-hmm. more broadly that really concerns me. So a big, a big part of my mission, and I think my purpose is to help people regain that sense of awe and curiosity about this miraculous entity of their own body that they are responsible for, and that they do have the knowledge and power to understand and impact in a positive way intrinsically. And so that's that's a big part of my message. Just start with the awe, this amazing, amazing organism that we are. And so much of that, I think, that disempowerment is reflected in a lot of the language like you talked about, like, oh, this runs in my family. Oh, it's genetic. And what we really know is that while genetics are absolutely a factor in a lot of diseases, they are not the main driver of chronic disease. And even things like, like what I was mentioning before about this like nutrigenomic interaction, like we know that the things that we do, like how much we sleep or how stressed we are or what food we're putting in our body, um, even if we've had an argument, you know, the day before that we haven't really recovered from, these things actually physically change the structure of our genome through what we're learning now is called the epigenome. So basically how our genes are folded, what is expressed, what's not expressed. A lot of these hormones that can be released when we are stressed or when we don't sleep enough or when we don't move enough, they actually have an impact on genetic expression. So yes, genes are a very important part of what is going to happen in our lives. But I think the key point that people need to internalize is that that's not fixed. That genes does not mean fixed or faded. It is something that is highly modifiable based on our day-to-day habits and actions. There's research that shows that just a few nights of poor sleep can change like dozens, if not hundreds of genes and their expressions. So 
So I think we need to move away from that really old school view of like, oh, yes, this runs in my family. This is genetics to what can I do in my day to day life to actually change the genetics of my body? And you're not actually changing the actual print, like what is written in your genome, the, the, the three billion base pairs. You're changing the way it's expressed and the way it's folded, which is actually much more important mm. uh, for health outcomes. So I think that's incredibly empowering. And I think what people need to really work towards is having enough knowledge and information and tools to know how to use daily habits and use diet and lifestyle as the tool that is going to unlock their best health. And it's actually so simple. And one of the things that really frustrates me about the healthcare system, and I think is genuinely a concerted effort, having been in that system for nine years, is almost to add too much complexity. We make things seem very hard and very complex. We keep a big information gap between the patient and the system. You see this in the way that healthcare records are stored. I mean, it's almost impossible to get like a copy of your lab results or to like transfer your records between hospitals because there's so many barriers to basically getting your own information. So we keep this information gap between the patient and the doctor. We keep patients kind of in the dark. And honestly, we keep people dumb about their own bodies. And then we tell them it's really complicated and you know you need to come to us for the answers. And what, one of the things I've learned in my journey outside of the healthcare system through really digging into more of the modifiable aspects of disease is actually not as complicated as we're led to believe. And some of that I do believe is um, you know, somewhat gaslighting of the American patient. More to come right after this. If people listening were going to make a decision, hopefully after listening to this podcast to say, I'm going to take more control over my health. Uh, Dr. Casey Bean says it can be simple and I can do this. So our friend Trey Gowdy wrote a book that I loved called Start, Stay or Leave. And he's also been a guest of the podcast this season. And to start, what are some things that you recommend people could do today, this week, if they want to start on this journey to better health? Mm. Well, I think there's, there's a couple things. There's one that's learning more about your body. And then there's the action. Like, what can you actually do to start? So I'll start with the learning and I'll focus on things that probably every single patient has access to. Like if you're just getting started, obviously the first step is not to run out and buy some really high-tech health gadgets and learn some really nuanced information. It's like, what's the basic stuff you can do? So what I would probably do is get out my um, cholesterol panel and any lab data that was done in my annual physical from the year prior. And I would print it out with a pencil. And I'd recommend going to, um, frankly, just go to a blog post that I co-wrote um, that basically walks people through how to interpret their basic lab data, like a annual cholesterol panel, to really understand where they stand in terms of their risk for future chronic metabolic disease. You really want to understand where am I on the spectrum of you know, healthy to much more at risk for these future diseases that are affecting so many Americans. That's a good point. Um, That's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think that that can be really empowering because a lot of the time we go into the doctor's office and it's very glossed over. It's like, oh, you're, you know, you're in range for this. You're a little bit out of range for this. We're going to start a stat. We're going to start metformin. And, and no one really understands what these means, but it's actually 
our basic lab testing that you just get every year is like a treasure trove of information about our foundational core cellular health that we just aren't getting the squeeze out of. Like we just need to sit down with it and understand it. And I believe every single person in the country can understand that data if they have the right resources. So we can, maybe we can link to that article, but it's basically called, it's called the ultimate guide to understanding your cholesterol panel on levelshealth.com slash blog. Um, and, and I signed up for I, that book, by the way, I get your blog. Uh, I believe it's, it's weekly, right? The email that it I is, get. Yeah. I love getting it. There's always a lot of great content in there. I always learn a little something. So people should definitely sign up for that. Thank you so much. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of my favorite blog posts because it's the most, it's really empowering and it's very practical. So for instance, you're going to get a fasting glucose test every year. And a lot of doctors will be like, oh, it's your fasting glucose is 110 milligrams to liter. Like, oh, that's technically in the pre-diabetes range, but we'll watch it because it's not in the diabetes range. And it's like, what I would say is that's a huge problem. If your blood sugar is 110, we want it to be between 70 five and 85, really in the like low normal range of healthy, because we actually know that as blood sugar, fasting blood sugar rises from like the low normal range into the early prediabetes range, it vastly is increasing your risk for other cardiometabolic diseases later in life. And it's a sign that your cells are basically becoming dysfunctional and how they're processing blood sugar. And that's a big, big problem. So just knowing that and being able to say, oh, okay, so I'm on the upper end of the spectrum and I really want to bring that down. That's step one, understand your body better through basic, often free lab testing that you get every year. And then I think in terms of the doing, um, you know, that's just, I, I think step one, if it's just start and you're just going to do one thing, it's moving away from ultra processed food to real unprocessed food. If people Can you give an example convert, absolutely. Of, of, of those two things. Yeah. So ultra processed food is basically food that originally, you know, at one point maybe grew from the earth, but has essentially been broken down in a factory into all of its constituent parts and then rebuilt into essentially like a Franken food. So this is this is 68% of what of, of what's on our grocery store shelves these days. Factory made, industrially manufactured Franken foods, most of which have either refined sugars, refined grains, or refined industrial seed oils. Three ingredients that you want to strike from your diet that if you do, your life and your risk for chronic disease will go down profoundly. So an example of this would be like a Chips Ahoy cookie or a Lay's potato chip or a Dorito or a soda. Um, basically, if you look at the ingredient list and it has any type of refined or added sugar, if the nutrition label says that there are added sugars, or if there's any type of refined industrial seed oil, like soybean oil, corn oil, canola oil, or it has refined ultra processed grains like like uh, enriched white flour, you know, uh, white bleached wheat flour, these types of things. Those are the ingredients that are basically making up the vast majority of the calories Americans are eating today and that have virtually no nutritional value. They're not giving your cells what they need to be healthy. Uh, and they're overloading our systems in our cells that basically allow us to be functional, you know, cellular organisms that we are. And right. so, you, so that's number one is, is kind of move away from the boxed and the bagged foods, unless those foods, those packaged foods have very, very few ingredients, all of which you recognize. So an example of a packaged food that I would say is actually like fine to eat would be something like um, a flax cracker. So like flackers or Ella's flats, these are popular alternative grain-free crackers. I like those now. flackers crackers. 
I love them so much. And technically, they are a processed food, right? They come in a bag. They are made in a factory. However, you look at the ingredient list, and it's organic, whole flax seeds, apple cider vinegar, and sea salt. So like, this is, this is fine. This does not have refined grains, refined sugars, or refined industrial seed oils. Um, and so you really need to learn how to look at labels. Um, but I'd say by and large, buying as much food that looks like it came from the ground, like actual fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, eggs, meat, poultry, fish, spices, and herbs, if you stick with those things, like we'll basically slash our risk for chronic disease by almost 100%. That's amazing. Tell us a little so. bit more about levels. I, I will tell you one thing that I've been confused about, and you could clarify it here for me. So I'm very intrigued. I haven't done it yet in terms of the, the device. Um, tell us how it works and how, how noticeable is it if you're wearing it? Sure, absolutely. So like I mentioned, Levels is a health technology company. And what we do is we give people access to this amazing technology called the Continuous Glucose Monitor, which is a sensor that you actually stick on the back of your arm. It's about the size of two quarters stacked on top of each other. And it's actually uh, doing a lab test basically every 15 minutes in the background, 24 hours a day, and sending that information to your smartphone. And the test it's doing is monitoring what your uh, blood sugar levels are. Uh, and so you're able to get this almost like movie, like you imagine like a graph or a curve of what's having, happening with your blood sugar at all times. Um, and so you can learn when you eat something or when you exercise or when you're stressed out, how are these things affecting your blood sugar? and start to kind of close the feedback loop between the actions you're taking and the immediate reaction in the body. And the reason glucose is so important to understand is because it's the key metabolic biomarker in the body. It's, it's, a, it's a readout of sort of what's going on with your metabolic um, health. And um, we know that it's related to so many of the chronic diseases. When your blood sugar is out of whack, we know that it obviously drives type two diabetes, but also it's related to obesity, it's related to heart disease, it's related to liver disease, kidney disease, Alzheimer's, dementia, which is now being called type three diabetes, cancer. Um, and so you really want to get your blood sugar in a low, stable and healthy range. Um, and having a continuous glucose monitor on that gives you that feedback about how your diet and lifestyle are affecting it in real time allows you to make choices that get it to be more stable and less variable. And this is not a marginal issue in our country. Right now, over 50% of American adults right now have prediabetes or type two diabetes. So like an overt diagnosis of a blood sugar problem. And so this is affecting like around 140 million Americans. And what's shocking is that 30% of teens now have prediabetes, a problem with their blood sugar. And 30%? 30% wow. of teens. This wow. used to be called adult onset diabetes. It can no longer be called adult onset diabetes because so many children have it. And I think this is, this is the thing that keeps me up at night is the fact that our children are getting slaughtered when it comes to risk for chronic disease. And a lot of it's rooted in these blood sugar problems, which is fundamentally a metabolic problem. And it's nearly entirely preventable. This is because of our industrialized 
ultra processed food diet that's now making up the majority of our calories, along with a lot of the other lifestyle things that we know increase our risk for chronic disease, like poor sleep and not moving enough and chronic low grade stress. Um, so, so that's why, you know, blood sugar is really important to manage because unfortunately our healthcare system is abjectly failing at preventing or reversing our cases of type two diabetes. They're going up every single year. They're going up starkly in children. And it really is our responsibility to get on top of this because the healthcare system is not doing it for us. What the healthcare system does is wait until people are overtly essentially sick with type two diabetes or advanced prediabetes and then put them on medication. Mm -hmm. And only then do they get access to technology like what levels gives patients, um, which allows them to monitor their blood sugar. But of course, what we're saying is let's flip this on its head. Why would you wait until your car is totaled before getting a mechanic? You know, you, you need to, you need having the information much, much earlier in life. So you can actually create a proper diet, understand how food's affecting your body and learn to eat properly and live in a way that keeps your blood sugar more stable. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing to think how much um, people could help themselves and hopefully stay out of this, what is becoming sort of destiny for the average American patient to become, you know, to have type two diabetes. And so um, our mission at levels to reverse the metabolic disease epidemic, um, which is a lofty goal because it's affecting the majority of Americans now, but it is the lowest hanging fruit that we have um, to really improve the human thriving in Americans by getting blood sugar under control. Cause it's related to so many of the things that are killing us and, and, and zapping our, mental health too. Like I mentioned, Alzheimer's dementia is directly related to metabolic health and blood sugar, um, as are all the other diseases I mentioned. Um, but we also know that depression, anxiety, fibromyalgia, chronic pain, migraines, a lot of these disorders that we think are mostly related to the brain, we're learning more and more now share a root cause physiology in how our body processes blood sugar and energy. And so for people, I think, who are struggling with diseases that they feel like they just haven't been able to get on top of with medication, I just think a message that I would share is that there is a lot that can be done that you might not be hearing about from your doctor with the simple daily habits around food and lifestyle. And so yeah. to really like remain hopeful and, how, and to dig deeper. How long does a person wear levels? Yeah. So the sensors stay on your arm for two weeks. They're they're stuck on your arm with adhesive. Oh, it's just two weeks. It's just two weeks. Yeah. And it's just, it's like a sticky patch, basically. You apply it to yourself. There is a small four millimeter probe that actually sticks into the arm. It's painless, um, but it does kind of, it freaks people out the first time because it's like, oh gosh, it's like, I'm a And can you still exercise and everything while wearing it? Absolutely. Yeah. You can, you know, go in the sauna, you can swim, you can exercise. We recommend putting on this um, sticky patch on top of it. We call it a performance cover, which helps it stay on um, and obviously put it on super clean skin, no lotion on the skin or anything. And it should stay on for the two weeks. And then you literally just peel it off, throw it away and you can stick a new one on. So our levels members always go through an initial one month metabolic awareness program. So they use two sensors over the course of the month. And, um, and during that time, they, you know, they experiment and they learn about how different foods are affecting their glucose and you know, they might find that their favorite breakfast, like oatmeal, causes a huge glucose spike. Yeah, I'm and super curious crash. about this. I'm curious. Yeah, like oatmeal. This is one of the things that so many people figure out when they put on levels, which is that whatever they were eating for breakfast, you know, cereal or toast or oatmeal, especially oatmeal, though, often sends them on a huge 
glucose roller coaster that leaves them feeling tired and like they need a mid-morning coffee. And they see that, oh my God, maybe it was my breakfast. Maybe it was going up 80 points on my glucose and then crashing down. That's actually causing me to feel kind of hangry mid-morning. And there's some simple things you can do to like balance that blood sugar spike. So, you know, people can add uh, more fiber to their oatmeal. So add some chia seeds, add some flax seeds, add some walnuts, maybe add some more fat and protein with some almond butter, choose a lower glycemic fruit with it, like maybe a blueberry, um, take a walk right after they eat the, the oatmeal. And that often really blunts their glucose spikes. So there's all these little modulations you can do to, to keep the blood sugar more stable with a meal. It doesn't just mean you have to like give it up forever, but then a lot of people also find like, Oh, I thought this was healthy, but this is clearly not helping me with my blood sugar. So I'm going to swap out my oatmeal for eggs and avocado or a frittata or, you know, a green salad with salmon and just have a totally flat glucose response. So a lot of people end up swapping out their breakfast or modulating it with more fat, protein or fiber or taking a walk after the meal. So well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Okay. I'm going to do it before the end of this year. This is my goal. I don't know. I'm thinking about my sleeveless summer season. Um, <laughs> but um, I think it looks very cool. Very I think it does look pretty dress. cool as well. Casey, thank you so much for your time. I also realized, I think you did the Barry Weiss podcast too, right? I did. Yes. yes that one was also very good. So if you, if you want more of Dr. Casey Means and who wouldn't, uh, Barry Weiss interviewed her. That was a very interesting conversation. I got a little bit, uh, a lot of what we covered, but even more so about, you know, concerns for what this means policy-wise going forward. And then the Mind Body Green podcast is also one that I recommend. Um, I think what you've done is remarkable, not just making that big career pivot, but being there, creating a health tech company and keeping so true to your principles uh, for what you wanted to do in terms of helping people understand their own bodies and to get more out of their own lives mm -hmm. by taking some control over what they're putting into their engines. And I thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Thank you so much, Dana. I'm glad I've joined those other podcasts and having Dr. Casey Means on and a chance to give everyone just something else to think about as you figure out a way to make everything okay for yourself. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. I'm Dana Perino. Everything will be okay. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.